Today, the Word of God we're looking at is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let us heed the word of the Lord. Over the years, various people have asked me, Pastor, what what do you think about celebrating Halloween? And should Christians celebrate Halloween or not? In case you are the next in line to ask me that question, I will go ahead and give you my answer. I hate to break it to you, but the Bible doesn't provide the kind of answer that you might want or are looking for, namely a a straight up or down vote on observing the holiday. Halloween, in that sense, is no different than dating or clothing R-rated movies, or stem cell research, and a thousand other realms of life where Scripture doesn't give us the list of explicit do's and don'ts that we might want it to give us. But I warn you, friends, that does not mean we're free to do whatever we want. Why not? Because the wisdom of of Scripture often comes to us in the form of principles, big-picture principles, that we then have to wrestle to apply in all kinds of areas of life with the help of God's Spirit and God's people. And on the surface, that can seem like a harder road to hoe. Why don't you just give us a long list of commands for every conceivable situation? That would make my job a little bit easier. But in the long run, friends, the way God's word speaks advances the one thing God cares about, namely helping us enjoy a growing relationship with him. In other words, because relationship is the goal, the Lord is just as, if not more interested in the wisdom of the questions we ask in our decision-making process than he is in the decision we ultimately make many times. Does that make sense? So, so let me give you one such critical question I think we need to ask as we approach this text. Are the choices you are currently making in your life awakening or numbing your heart to the spiritual gravity of evil. I want you to think about that. Are the choices you're currently making in your life, are they awakening or are they numbing your heart 
to the spiritual gravity of evil? Why, why do I urge you to ask that question? Not just in relation to Halloween or rated horror films, whatever, all, all kinds of areas of life. Why do we need to ask that question? Here's the reason. Because whether or not you know it, your entire life, my entire life, all of our lives, plays out in the midst of a cosmic conflict between two spiritual powers. The power of God and the power of Satan. I had a, someone ask me this week, Matthew, what, what should I do when I feel like I'm suddenly in an experience where I just sense spiritual warfare going on? And before I answer that question, I just tried to step back for a second and say, you know what? Here's the first thing you need to realize. Our entire life goes down in the midst of spiritual warfare. And I think that that's part of the reason, there's part of the reason that the struggle between good and evil in so many of our most beloved movies or novels resonates so deeply in our hearts. You ever think about that? So many action films, they just follow the same, I'm not just talking about Marvel, follow the same sequence. You've got good, you've got evil, and we're all kind of sitting there, I hope the good guy wins. The details of those stories are pretend. But the context of a cosmic battle between good and evil could not be more real. Okay? And 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, what we just finished looking at, Paul reminded us there of this cosmic conflict between good and evil and that human history will prevail, will end, wind up in a decisive act of divine judgment where good wins because Jesus wins. That's chapter one. Evil will be punished, righteousness will be rewarded, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The day of the Lord is good, the day of the Lord is guaranteed, and the day of the Lord has yet to come, right? So we're still waiting. We're we're living in the gap, as it were, between the inauguration, the start of God's kingdom in the birth of Christ, and the consummation, the completion, the finish of God's kingdom in the return of Christ. We're living between those two things in in this gap. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, with all that's going on here, I'm convinced, helps us to know how to live in the gap. That's the goal. As we wait for the day of the Lord, here's what Paul wants us to do. We need to take comfort in knowing that God reigns over every evil power. That's what we do in the gap. Among other things, As we wait for the day of the Lord, we take comfort in knowing that God reigns over every evil power. So, how do we know that? Well, in these verses, and we're going to have to move quickly through a lot of this this morning, I think he gives us at least three reasons why we know that, okay? So, if the main point is, as we're waiting for the day of the Lord, we take comfort in knowing God reigns over every evil power, that raises the question, how do we know God reigns? How do we know that? Three answers. Here's the first. First, We know God reigns over evil powers because God sovereignly ordains the rise of evil powers. He sovereignly ordains the rise of evil powers. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. When Paul writes here, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, he begins addressing one of his greatest pastoral concerns for the young church in Thessalonica. What was that? Evidently, Many folks in that church believed that the day of the Lord had already come. They weren't waiting for it in the future. Jesus had already returned. Exactly why they believed that, Paul doesn't say, but the resulting dilemma is entirely understandable. Think about this. Our entire hope for deliverance, for persecution and suffering on account of our faith, depends on on the judgment King Jesus will mete out when he returns. Don't lose heart. The Lord will vindicate you. That's Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. However, if in fact Jesus has already returned, unbeknownst to them, and they're still suffering, 
because they were, that raises all kinds of questions about whether or not their faith has been in vain. Make sense? And if you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul tells us that the Thessalonians, surprise, surprise, were shaken in mind and alarmed. No kidding. (laughs) False teaching always does tremendous damage to the people of God. It sows seeds of fear, unbelief, where there should be faith. And Paul doesn't want them to be what? Quickly shaken or in mind or alarmed when someone says that the day of the Lord has already come. Why does he not want them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed? Because Paul knows the day of the Lord has not yet come. He knows that, right? So how does he comfort the Thessalonians? Does he say, guys, just trust me. When the day of the Lord comes, I will tell you. And until then, you should get off Facebook and stop listening to all this fake news. Does he, does he do that? No, he doesn't do that because he's a good pastor, right? He equips them with God's word so that they can know what is true and discern what is true long after Paul has left the scene. And inspired by the Spirit to do that, Paul tells them two things that will happen before Jesus returns. Therefore, Thessalonians, until these two things happen, both of them, you can rest assured that the day of the Lord has not yet happened. Look at verse 3. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now Paul is light on detail here, which has prompted no shortage of speculation throughout all of church history. So I want to remind you of something, friend, as we jump into this. Wisdom lies in heeding what God has revealed, not in speculating about what God has kept hidden. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) Wisdom lies in heeding what God has revealed, not in speculating about what God has kept hidden. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, right? But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, the Lord has revealed exactly what we all need to know about the future so that we could experience life and pursue godliness in the present. He hasn't revealed everything we might want to know about the future or every question we might want him to answer from this passage. But what has he done? He's told us everything we need to know about the future in order to trust him and follow him in the present. That's our conviction. And in that regard, Paul isn't alone. Biblical authors from from Daniel and Ezekiel to the Apostle John, they join him, Paul, and telling us to expect a climactic, universal rebellion against the authority of God at the end of the age. This this may strike you as weird, but it's not the only place the Word of God tells us to expect that. In other words, the, the trajectory of mankind is not, apart from God, onward and upward to glory. It is deeper and further into sin. And yet, please hear this, the simple fact that God says as much is so comforting. Why? Why? Because it reminds us that he knows the future because he has ordained the future. That's why. Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. 
So God never does evil, right? He would cease to be God. Yet, he sovereignly ordains the rise of evil. So what should that tell you? To tell you, friend, that no act of human or demonic rebellion, however great, escapes the sovereign will of God. You need to remember that. When you're experiencing acute suffering at the hands of evil men, God is not surprised by that. God is not taken off guard by that. God is not suddenly dialing up a plan B for your life. You may never understand why he permitted something so painful to happen. Ever. Yet there is a world of comfort in knowing that the rise of evil is not a threat to the purposes of God. It's part of the purposes of God. Even when we don't understand why or how. His sovereign will, notice this, back to verse 3, includes the rise of the man of lawlessness who will come to power on earth before Jesus returns. And and verse 4 tells us he he will be more or less the personification of evil. He'll he'll demand for himself the worship that God alone deserves. How, How will he do that? By proclaiming himself to be God. That's what this guy will do. And here again, Paul's not alone because his words in verse 4 describing this man of lawlessness are a direct allusion all the way back to the book of Daniel. Chapter 11, verse 36, which we actually preached several years ago, which proved helpful to me this week, where the Lord revealed to Daniel what would happen in the future. Listen to this verse from Daniel. And the king shall do as he wills, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. If you're not familiar with uh, with apocalyptic or end times literature in the Bible, you should know that it is full of symbols. That's the way it rolls. And And where those symbols repeat in similar ways, it's usually because the biblical authors are describing the same thing from multiple angles. No less than if you were walking around your car or walking around your house, you would describe that from different sides. But you would hope by the time you finish describing the final side that a careful observant listener to your description would say, you know what? I think they're talking about the same house. Or the same car. They're just describing it from different sides. And that's what we find in God's word. Because the way Daniel describes the king who exalts himself in the vision of Daniel 11 sounds a lot like the king of bold face back from Daniel 8. And the little horn from Daniel 7. And Jesus picks up on the same imagery in Matthew 24 when he talks about the abomination of desolation which sounds a whole lot like the activity of the Antichrist that John describes in 1 John 2 and is nearly identical to the activity of the beast that rises from the bottomless pit in Revelation 11 and 17. So, does that mean we should expect a little horn, a king of bold face, a king who exalts himself, an abomination of desolation, a man of lawlessness, an antichrist, and a freaky beast to literally enter human history in a row in some sort of crazy demonic parade. No. No. They're symbols. And together, they tell us at least two things. So listen very carefully to me. First, the recurring nature of the symbolic language in verse 4 points to a pattern of wicked rebellion against the Lord that is present today and will only continue to intensify until Jesus returns. Second, 
the distinct title and the chronological character of verse 4, the, the day of the Lord will not come until, chronological, the man of lawlessness title is revealed, indicates that this present pattern of idolatry will culminate in the appearance of a future figure who takes rebellion against the authority of God to an unprecedented level. So, before Jesus returns, what should we expect, friends? We should expect wickedness to increase until it is personified in a final act of rebellion against the Lord. Why should we expect that? Because that is precisely what God has ordained will happen. We don't know everything we might want to know about the future rise of evil before Jesus returns. We do know the day of Jesus' return is fixed and certain because Jesus says it will come after certain events and not before them. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God knows the future because he has sovereignly ordained the future, including this rise of evil powers. And the fact that he explains that to us in advance is intended to comfort our hearts. You, you don't know all that will happen in the future, right? All you need to do is read this passage and think, man, I've got more questions than answers right now. But guess who knows exactly what's going to happen in the future? Jesus does. That's why he reveals part of it to us. We don't know, but Jesus knows because it's all part of his sovereign plan. And he'll intervene at just the right time. In this sense, I was thinking about that this week. I I think the way Paul tries to comfort the Thessalonians here, God ordains the rise of evil powers, is similar, we'll see how this goes, to the way I tried to care for my son, Ethan, when we took our first backpacking trip to Mount Pleasant last week. What does Ethan have to do with a man of lawlessness? Well, stick with me, okay? So knowing this was his first trip, I told him, because I wanted to comfort him, I said, buddy, here's what you should expect. The trail is going to be pretty flat and easy. You're going to love it. Then it's going to get a little bit harder for a while. And then right before we get to the top of Mount Pleasant, it is going to get insanely steep. Don't be surprised. Be ready. Did my words answer all of my son's inquisitive questions about every detail of the trail? No. But what did they do? They helped him know what to expect. So he wouldn't think, that we had missed Mount Pleasant or we would never get to Mount Pleasant when the hiking got really tough. In other words, he needed to know that dad knows what's going to happen. Dad has a plan so that when my 10-year-old legs really start to hurt, I'll know we're almost there. It comforted him. It's similar to what Paul's doing for the Thessalonians. But of course, the analogy eventually breaks down pretty quickly. Why? Because as his dad, I have absolutely no control over the hardship and suffering and physical pain that stand between him and the top of Mount Pleasant, right? In that sense, I'm just as much along for the ride, trying to deal with every massive rock and fallen tree along the way, just like he is. Not so with our God. Not so. Why not? Why is that not what God's relationship is like with all the powers of evil that are arrayed against us past, present, and future? Well, does God sovereignly ordain the rise of evil powers? Absolutely. That's the first point. It's the first reason we take comfort in knowing he reigns over them. How do we know he reigns over them so we can take comfort in that? Because he sovereignly ordains their rise. And yet, there's more. And here's where he parts ways with what I did for Ethan. Point two, God maintains complete control over evil powers. Verses five to eight. Sometimes I fear that we carry around this muddled notion. I can't think of what else, how else to describe it. 
that in the cosmic conflict between God and Satan, the only thing we know for certain is that they'll be back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like a good movie, and then Jesus will win. Friends, we have a far better assurance than that. Okay? Listen again to verses 6 and 7. As Paul reminds the Thessalonians of what he taught them previously. And you know what is restraining him, the man of lawlessness, now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Listen carefully. We shouldn't expect to fully understand everything which Scripture references or alludes to as if our frail little minds could grasp the mind of the Lord. But we should expect, on account of the sufficiency of God's revelation and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, to clearly understand all we need to understand in order to glorify God and enjoy a growing relationship with Him. In that regard, we don't know everything that Paul evidently taught the Thessalonians. When he says things like, verse 5, don't you remember that I told you these things? Verse 6, and you know, oh, that I could know and tell you right now what apparently the Thessalonians knew. I don't. But the main takeaways, what we need for life and godliness, are crystal clear. And remember... I'll keep saying this again. The divinely intended effect of these words is not speculation. It's comfort. So what do we get from verses 6 and 7? Two big takeaways. First, under this heading of God maintains complete control over evil powers. First, the man of lawlessness does not have final authority. Jesus does. In verse 6, look there. Paul refers to what is restraining him. In verse 7, he speaks of who is restraining him. And we need not know how he is being restrained or who is personally restraining him in order to take comfort in the fact that he is being restrained. What should that tell you? It should tell you that even the, the climactic personification of evil, the very worst wickedness imaginable, isn't in control. He, man of lawlessness, antichrist, beast from the bottomless pit, no less than every other principality and power in the universe, evil or good, can never move or act until their time. Why not? Because every power in the universe, past, present, and future, is ultimately subject to the authority of God. In other words, it's not just as though you could think this from point one. Well, yeah, God knows the future, but then he kind of has to deal with it and all the fallen trees and big rocks along the way, just like the rest of us. But, but he has cool superpowers, so he can kind of get around whatever. No, he does sovereignly ordain the future, but he also controls the future and controls every evil power. The man of lawlessness does not have final authority. Jesus does. And that's important, really important, in the gap. Why? Because there are all kinds of situations in this life, long before the man of lawlessness is revealed, where what? The mystery of lawlessness, the principle, the struggle of rebellion against God's authority, is all over the place, trouble without and trouble within. So marriages are broken by infidelity. Mystery of lawlessness. Hearts are shattered by sexual abuse, mystery of lawlessness, a, a lifestyle of, of joyful, sacrificial giving to the cause of the gospel is replaced by a quiet greed that fights to have our best life now, mystery of lawlessness at work. Or, or we deny our fellow image bearers the kindness and love the image of God within them justly calls forth, mystery of lawlessness at work. Okay, it, the list could go on. My point is, if you think carefully about the evil within us and around us, it could easily feel like we are just being carried along in a sea of wickedness. But verses 6 and 7 remind us that's not true. 
We're not being carried along in a sea, but both the man of lawlessness in verse 6 and the mystery of lawlessness in verse 7, they are restrained. They're subjected. They're governed. They're controlled. Their power is not supreme. The power of God is supreme. And the authority he exercises over every evil power through the reign of his victorious son, Jesus Christ, cannot be thwarted. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's that, church? Jesus Christ. You need to know that no evil power sits on the throne of the universe. Jesus Christ sits on the throne of the universe, and he is not going anywhere. That's the big point here. The man of lawlessness doesn't have final authority. Jesus does. Second, the man of lawlessness will not last for long. Jesus will. So, when when evil personified is finally allowed to make his entrance, it will not be because Jesus lost his grip on a galaxy far, far away and missed the fact that evil was secretly rising in some dark corner of the universe. No. Why will he allow the man of lawlessness to be revealed? Look at verse 8. It will be so that the Lord Jesus might kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming, which is why Paul says back in verse 3, that he is the son of destruction. He won't be allowed to exalt himself against the Lord forever. In other words, good and evil will not be locked in some kind of eternal struggle, which is what the unending Star Wars series would make you think, where the best we can hope for is that God just keeps kind of restraining it and holding it back. No. God will ultimately prevail Because God has always been in control. And I want you to notice in verse 8 that this is not a violent struggle. This is not the end of every Jason Bourne flick. Okay, you don't have the lawless one in Jesus. Ha, you know, mirrors and boxes and oh. No. No. What does Jesus do to bring the very personification of every evil power? To nothing. He speaks. He simply speaks. Jesus will speak. An authoritative word of judgment and the most wicked power of evil imaginable will be completely destroyed by the breath of his mouth. Your life, Christian, may play out in a warfare between two spiritual powers. But if you're a Christian, you are not a helpless pawn in the middle. (laughs) Battered about, the Lord holds you in his hand. He will not let you go And he will give no quarter to all who oppose him. In other words, no evil is going to befall you today or at the end of the world or at any point between those two times that is not under the complete control of King Jesus. So as you wait for the day of the Lord, take comfort in knowing that God reigns over every evil power because he sovereignly controls every evil power. He ordains the rise of evil powers. He sovereignly controls, maintains complete control over evil powers. Point number three, last reason we know he reigns, verses 9 to 12, 
God accomplishes his divine judgment through evil powers. In some ways, reading this passage, this is what it should do in your heart. I can't believe you are that sovereign. And each one of these just gets more amazing. I think this last one may be the most stunning. So listen carefully, okay? God's reign over evil is so extensive, so pervasive, so total and complete that he isn't accomplishing his will despite evil activity. He is accomplishing his will through evil activity. Think about that. You know, sometimes we have this idea that, well, you know, God is like Captain America on steroids. And so no matter what happens, no matter what evil's coming at him, you know, he finds a way to sort of, and then his good plan can keep inching closer to the finish line. That's not what Paul's saying here. It's far better than that, friends. Far better. God's accomplishing his will through evil activity. So, how does that work? Let's ask three simple questions and answer them to wrap up. Question number one. Who is deceiving those who are perishing? Answer, Satan is. Look at verse 9. So verse 9 tells us that Satan, the arch enemy of God, is ultimately behind the activity of the man of lawlessness. In other words, the lawless one's activity is Satan's activity. He's not a rogue agent. He's a front for the father of lies. Because from the fall of man onward, Satan has been at work. Doing what? Seeking to undermine God's kingdom and steal the worship that is rightly due God alone for himself. So it comes as no surprise that he presents Satan, this man of lawlessness, as an evil Messiah. An antichrist of sorts. Now notice in verse 9, he too has a coming, just like Jesus at the end of verse 8. He appears to wield tremendous power, no less than Jesus, and prove as much with signs and wonders of his own. But there's a problem. They're false. They're real signs and wonders, but the one they appear to authenticate is a total pretender. He's acting like he's God, but he's not God. His his mission is not to bring life the way Jesus brings life to us. His mission is to bring death. It's the opposite of everything Jesus came to do. In that regard, in verse 10, everything the man of lawlessness is doing, animated by Satan, is an act of wicked deception. So though we're still waiting for him to be revealed, remember this, friend, that the mystery of lawlessness, the principle of his activity, is already at work. So what should that tell us? That the life sin appears to offer you is a total lie. Total lie. Anything you or I choose to worship or live for or chase after instead of Jesus will never deliver his promise. It only leads to death and that by Satan's design. So financial security will not save you. Okay, sexual exploits will not save you. Chasing a body image or or earning the approval of man or a life of ease and relaxation will not save you, no matter how much they seem to scream, that is where goodness is found. I mean, what, what did Satan do all the way back in the Garden of Eden? What did he do? He said, oh, if you eat of that fruit, it's going to be incredible. You're going to be like God. For real? Oh, yeah. What actually happened? As soon as they disobeyed the Lord, the image of God they already had, they were already like God, was completely corrupted, and they were justly condemned for their rebellion by their Creator, which reminds us, No less than this passage, rebellion against God's authority isn't just wrong, it's fatal. 
Because it's deception. The entire enterprise of sin, friends, isn't a choice between, well, one man says this is good, other people say that is good, I guess I'll kind of pick for myself what I think works. No, you have what is true and you have what is a lie. You have what is life and you have what is death. You have what is glorious, you have what is exceedingly deceptive. It's always been that way because Satan is deceiving those who are perishing. Question two, why are those whom Satan deceives perishing? Answer, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You know what that says? Your deepest spiritual problem, friend, is not ignorance. It's idolatry. You may have come in here this morning thinking, you know, my real beef with Christianity is, is as a thoughtful Renaissance man or woman, I have a host of respectable intellectual objections. Friend, if that's the case, I'm really grateful you're here. And I would be more than happy to talk with you at the end of this meeting or at any point in time about your intellectual objections you may have to embracing faith in Christ. But you need to hear this. The great obstacle between you and life in Jesus doesn't lie in your mind. It lies in your heart. Okay? It lies in your heart. Is believing the truth, what's the truth here? It's ultimately the truth about Jesus Christ, right? Because that is the one in whom God has most fully revealed himself, God is truth. Wherever he most fully reveals himself is truth. Is believing the truth about Jesus Christ necessary? Absolutely, right? Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a reason Paul describes those who are perishing in verse 12 as those who did not believe the truth. But notice, he also describes the exact same group of people back in verse 10 as those who refused to love the truth. So which one is it? Are we saved from the wrath of God against our sin through faith, belief, or love? What I love to do, the answer to the question is yes. It's yes. It's two sides of the same coin. But believing the truth, genuine faith in Jesus, in other words, is not just a posture of the mind. It doesn't just acknowledge Jesus or agree with Jesus. It's a posture of the heart that prizes and treasures Jesus. Saving faith believes he is true, and then it loves him accordingly. You can't separate those things. There's only one alternative to that, Loving the righteous one, it's loving unrighteousness. Or as Paul says at the end of verse 12, taking pleasure in unrighteousness. So if you put verse 10 and verse 12 together, what do they do? They guard us from thinking that all is well with our soul because we assent to a set of religious facts in our mind when in reality we actually love all kinds of other things way more than Jesus in our heart. If that's the case, friend, it is not at all well with your soul. There's no such thing as genuine belief in Jesus apart from supreme love for Jesus. If you don't delight in Jesus as your Savior, you will perish under the righteous wrath of God. Those who were perishing and will perish, perish because they refused to love the truth. And so be saved. Final question. Why does Satan deceive men and women who are already perishing? Well, it's because God is using Satan to guarantee their condemnation. And with this question and answer, we finally arrive at the Part of my third point that God is accomplishing his divine judgment 
through evil powers. So look back at verse 10. Those who are headed for eternal death under the wrath of God are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all, all those who are perishing, may be condemned. That is both a sober warning and a tremendous encouragement. Both of them. The warning is what? What's the warning? If you harden your heart toward the Lord, friend, he will harden your heart toward him. If you harden your heart toward the Lord, no less than he did with Pharaoh in Exodus, God will harden your heart toward him. That's the warning. It's an expression of his righteous judgment. In other words, you cannot harden your heart against your rightful king and creator and in response get a, oh well. No, there are consequences for that sin. So what's the encouragement? Well, the encouragement is that even the wicked deception of evil personified, right? The the satanic work of the man of lawlessness All that he's doing to deceive those who are perishing, what is that getting done? It is fulfilling the purposes of God despite the fact that there is nothing Satan hates more than the purposes of God. You follow that? So think about it. Who is doing the deceiving? Satan and all who serve him, right? The lawless one included. But why is he deceiving them? Verse 11, because God sent him. The strong delusion that he works and affects man of lawlessness is exactly what Satan wants him to do because Satan is wicked. But in an even greater way, it is exactly what God wants him to do because God is righteous. Which is why I say, that God accomplishes his divine judgment through evil powers. And friends, if that's a new thought for you, then I would simply suggest that you have yet to consider the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is no greater act of evil imaginable than the crucifixion of the Son of God. Even what the man of lawlessness will do can't top the evil of that day. But yet, what did God do through that greatest act of evil imaginable? He didn't work around it. He didn't work despite it. He worked directly through it to accomplish the greatest good imaginable, the free offer of salvation for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. His reign over evil powers is that great and good. So, I don't know how aware you are, friend, on a daily basis of the cosmic conflict in your life. I remind you that every moment of your life is is going down in the midst of a spiritual warfare, okay? You are either fighting for Satan and against God in all you think, feel, and do, or you are fighting for God and against Satan and all you think, feel, and do. If you're fighting to believe and love Jesus, longing for his return, then you have great comfort in this passage. God reigns over every evil power. He sovereignly ordains their rise. He maintains complete control over them in the middle, and he accomplishes divine judgment through them. Great comfort. God reigns over evil powers. But friend, if you are not right now fighting to believe and love Jesus, if you're not longing for his return, then you have cause for great alarm. What is that? God reigns over evil powers. And as it stands, you are living in opposition to him. You you might not feel wicked, but the posture of your heart toward your creator is, is wicked. There is no such thing as casual, skeptical, coolly modern opposition to Jesus. 
You are either submitting to him or you're not. And the day of the Lord, regardless, friend, is coming. And so that means that whether that day is a day of unspeakable joy for you or unspeakable sorrow is in many ways up to you. And in particular, what you will do about King Jesus. Will you submit to his reign or will you oppose his reign? I urge you, friend, choose life and submit to the God who reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's very easy in places like this in your word to get caught up in all the wrong things. Or to go super general and just say, you win what's next in my Bible reading plan. <laughs> Lord, thank you for helping us to slow down a little bit this morning. To think hard. And to recognize just how many good reasons you have given us to take comfort in this gap in knowing you reign over evil powers. Father, we thank you right now as we sing this song and respond by looking to you, King Jesus. That we don't need to be surprised by evil. You sovereignly ordain its rise. We don't need to be terrified by evil. You maintain complete control all along the way. And Lord, ultimately, even though there is great mystery, and we do not ultimately know why evil exists or why you would allow it, there are so many questions that are unresolved. We thank you for the comfort we find in knowing that you are achieving your sovereign purpose through evil. When we understand it and when we don't, thank you for humbling us today and comforting us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.